Hey, everyone. Um, so if you're looking for seats, there's now a couple, there's a number of seats over here or the dreaded front row. There's a couple. But if, you're, if you really don't want the front row, there's like at least 10 seats over here. Um, all right. Uh, with that said, just hey, one quick thing. After service, uh, we're doing, we're hosting a gathering called Home, which is kind of like our membership thing. Essentially, I just want to say, if if you're not really committed here, you're sort of unsure, but you want just a space to ask questions, home is a great place to come. So even if you're like, I don't know about this, and you want to ask some questions, just come to home and bring your diatribe or pontification or whatever you want to bring, and I'll be up there and I can handle it. All right. Uh, with that said, uh, so we're in our third week of Mark. Um, one of the things about Mark is it's really fast-paced. His favorite word is immediately. Um, so some Sundays we'll focus on like one short story. The next two weeks we'll do that in chapter two. Uh, today we're going to sort of bring in four stories because they kind of work together in a sequential uh, movement. Now, if you haven't been with us, uh, we're still in chapter one. Uh, Mark basically set the stage for Jesus' ministry. Uh, and then... He called a couple disciples, Jesus did. And now we're launching into verses 21 through 45. So there's some Bibles in the pews if you want to use those. And we're going to talk about verses 21 through 45 in four movements. Movement one begins in verse 21. And they went to Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. All right, so movement one begins with Jesus attending synagogue on a Saturday. He's with the other Jewish men and women of Capernaum, which seems to be his new hometown after moving there uh, from Nazareth. Now, just in case you're sort of new to the Gospels or the New Testament or the Scriptures as a whole, just want to say the synagogue is not the temple. Uh, there was one temple. It was in Jerusalem. That's where people went on four major pilgrimage festivals throughout the year. It's where they did sacrifices. Uh, on the other hand, there were lots of synagogues. And these synagogues existed in towns and villages throughout Israel. And they focused on reading and teaching of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And though there was like one person generally in charge of the synagogue, this person oversaw the library, worship, and the school. But this person, the ruler of the synagogue, generally didn't preach. This meant that on each Sabbath, uh, usually a scribe would come up and teach. But this Sunday, it falls to Yeshua, to Jesus. And clearly, he's super effective, right? Mark says the congregation is astonished. 
And I think sometimes we read this and we think, yeah, those scribes, man, they were terrible teachers. But that's not what Mark is trying to tell you. Uh, In the first century, actually, most people weren't particularly literate. So they needed really well-educated people like the scribes to break down the scriptures. And there was this deep hunger in Israel for the scribes to come and help them understand the Hebrew Bible. They were respected so much that they got the first seat. People would actually stand up when they entered the room. These are deeply respected religious teachers in the first century. So much so that when Mark writes about the synagogue in verse 23, he calls it their synagogue, as in the scribes' synagogue. But Jesus, he teaches with such authority that these revered men, the scribes, just don't measure up. Right? It's within this context, during Saturday synagogue, that an unclean spirit speaks up. Now imagine it for a second. You're sitting in the third row at synagogue, just chilling. You're here to sing some songs, maybe listen to someone break down the scriptures. And all of a sudden, a demon-possessed person in row three says this. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. And it's kind of like Mark, as Jesus is starting this first movement, this first ministry act, is wanting to set the stage for us. Right from the outset, to help the reader, to help us understand right, that Jesus is not just interested in teaching about the kingdom of God, but actually he's trying to help us see that there is a battle ensuing. There is a battle behind the scenes, right? Between the one anointed with the spirit of God, right? The king of God's kingdom who come to establish, right? God's kingdom reign on earth and dark powers, unclean spirits who hold people hostage, Notice the demon here, the unclean spirit, refers to itself in the plural. It knows that Jesus' battle, his mission, is not simply with this guy in row three, but to lay waste the entire demonic power structure, to take down the entire kingdom of darkness, beginning in this synagogue, beginning with this man in row three. Mark tells us that Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, which not only brings this spirit into submission, but this person who was just possessed is now, because of Jesus, restored. Jesus begins his ministry by setting captives free. I think sometimes we skip over this moment, but can you imagine this person's life? after this day meeting Jesus in the synagogue, when he goes back into his family, his workplace, how that changes for him. And just like with his teaching, right, the people are amazed, his authority, his power. In Greek, the word amazed derives from the root of the word to strike. Jesus has, you know, slapped them upside the head 
with his teaching and his power. What he says and what he does. Which brings us to movement two. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, right? These are the four fishermen he just called. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. All right, so Jesus is at the synagogue. Then he goes to the disciples' house probably hoping to kick back, right? This is the Sabbath. He just taught. He just kicked out a demon. Now he wants to kick back. But when he arrives, he learns that Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. And you get this impression reading Mark. It wasn't until the disciples saw Jesus in the synagogue rebuke the unclean spirit that they realized, we should tell him about your mother-in-law. And they do. And Jesus walks over her, and he touches her. He lifts her up, and she's healed. On the Sabbath, before sundown. Mark seems to be telling us, I think, that Jesus doesn't just care about preaching. He doesn't just care about kicking out demons. But he cares about the everyday needs of everyday people. Even people with just a fever in their house one Sabbath afternoon. And as an aside, I just want to say this, just because I think this text has been used inappropriately throughout church history. It says that she began to serve them, and some people have used this throughout history as a way to relegate women to household service. Uh, but this is actually really not a proper reading of the text. Um, the word serve is the same word used in Mark 10.45 when Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom to many. Right? Serving is the way of Jesus. The way for those who follow him. Peter's mother-in-law is just doing what all faithful servants of the king do. They serve. Alright, so Jesus is taught. He sets someone free. He's healed someone of an everyday malady. Not bad. First day of ministry. Well done, Jesus. Right, but the day's not over. Word is spreading. Right? Gossip works way better than Twitter if you want to start a movement. When the sun goes down, now the Sabbath is over. People start showing up at Simon's home asking for Jesus. Everyone who thinks maybe someone in their house or household or extended family or neighbor is possessed by a demon or sick or just needs help shows up at the door. I sort of imagine this line of 50 or 100, 200 people. They open the door and they're like, okay, I guess the day isn't over yet. Anyone who's taught or even just worked a full day, but you know, I, as someone who teaches on Sunday, then leads stuff in the afternoon, like by sundown, like I'm done. I imagine Jesus is pretty tired at this point. He is human. But when people come to him that are tired and worn out, beat up by maladies, possession, whatever, 
Mark says that Jesus healed many. And this doesn't mean that he healed some. He's like, you, but not you. What this means is that Jesus brought healing to everyone who showed up at the door until the last person left. Which brings us to movement three, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon, those who were with him, searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. All right, so Jesus woke up on Saturday, went to synagogue, he taught, cast out a demon, then he spent much of the evening healing people. The next morning, he sleeps in, right? Who wouldn't? That's a long day. No, right? Jesus wakes up early, he goes out into the darkness. There's no street lights, and he prays. And if you think about it, If Jesus is going to pray, when is he going to do it? Maybe he showed up at synagogue thinking, man, it's the Sabbath, and it ended up being a really full day. He doesn't know if the next morning, when everyone else wakes up, if there's going to be another line from another village waiting for him at the door. There are three times in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is said to be praying. They are all at night, and they are all in solitary places. And I think Mark here in chapter 1 is trying to remind us that Jesus is replenished by his connection with the Father. You get this sense that the work Jesus has to do is both an inward work and an outward work. Right? Jesus can't extend himself in compassion without first attending to the source of his mission and his ministry and his purpose, the Father. And likewise, it's Jesus' connection to the Father at night and in prayer that compels him to bring the Father's heart to all these villages in the Galilee. You also get this sense that the significance of Jesus' ministry simply doesn't consist in what he does for humanity, for Israel, but also that much of what he is there to do is simply be with the Father. And it's from that intimate connection with the Father that all of his ministry flows. But even in the dark, at night, in the desert, Jesus ends up having company. We don't exactly know what happens. My guess is people started showing up at the door. Like, we heard Jesus is here. I brought my brother. And the disciples go to the door and they're like, yeah, let me go get Jesus. They open up his little, I don't know, little bungalow, whatever, his like door. And they're like, where is he? You know, and now I imagine a anxious search. Let's go find him. Right? And they show up, meet Jesus in the desert, somewhere outside of Capernaum. They find him alone and praying And I sort of read with like an accusatory edge, like, everyone is looking for you. Dude, get on task. (laughs) The line is already forming. 
What's interesting to me is the disciples want Jesus to respond to the immediate need forming at the door. But Jesus is actually committed to a course that I think is informed by his prayer, by his connection with the Father. The disciples are like, get to the door, immediate need. Jesus is like, hey, this is why I have come. Yeah, I get the immediate need, but the Father has said we're to go to the other villages. It's not just for Capernaum. I need to preach the good news in all the towns. I need to bring healing of the Father to all the towns. And this is what he does. Informed by prayer in the presence of the Father, he knows his mission and his purpose, and he's not going to be sidelined by the immediate need, the anxiety of the disciples telling him, hey, dude, get on task. Which brings us to movement four. Verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, Say that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. People were coming to him from every quarter. All right, so Jesus in prayer is clear. This is why I'm here. He starts going and teaching in Galilee and around. He's teaching and healing. And one day, Mark tells us, a man with leprosy came to him. Now, I think for us in the 21st century, we're like, good for you, leper. Way to make your need known. Like, well done. Like, I just think, right? Like, we read that. He came to him. Well done, right? In the first century, this is a provocative statement. You do not get via or um, past line 40 without your like sort of feeling potentially insulted. This is a highly provocative sentence, potentially offensive. Let's see why. So a leper cannot just go up to anyone, let alone a famous teacher. Leviticus, Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, which they all knew said this, the person with an infectious disease must wear torn clothes. Let his hair be unkept, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Imagine this for a second. You need to wear torn clothing. Well, that's sort of in, but back then it wasn't, okay? Uh, you need to tear your clothes your hair needs to be crazy. Your face needs to be partially covered. We also get this one. Um, and you need to cry out whenever you're walking by someone. I have COVID. No, just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Totally going the wrong way. Okay. Back on task. Okay. Torn clothing, crazy hair, face covered. You need to cry out, unclean. In the first century, if you're a leper, you can't get within 50 paces of another human being. 
If you enter a house, the entire house is unclean. If you're standing under a pear tree, I don't know if there's pear trees there. You're under a pomegranate tree, and someone else walks under that pomegranate tree, you're, you've made them unclean. That's actually an example from oral tradition, the Mishnah. And yet, this leper decides, you know what? I am going to approach a religious leader and make him unclean. The leper risks everything. He's violating law and custom on the chance of being healed and restored by Jesus. He falls on his knees and he begs, if you are willing, make me clean. Notice he doesn't doubt that Jesus is able. He wonders if he's willing and who wouldn't? For however long he's had to yell out unclean, people have avoided him like he is the worst thing they've seen that day. No wonder he wonders whether Jesus even wants to heal him. No one else seems to have cared all that much. In fact, Jesus' response is potentially even more scandalous than the leper's approach. One would expect an observant Jew to recoil in fear and anger. Get away from me! But with Jesus, compassion, not contempt, is present. Rather than turning from the leper, he turns to him, he touches him. But notice this. Jesus is not polluted by the leper's uncleanliness. Rather, the leper is cleansed and healed by Jesus' contagious holiness. Remember in the synagogue? When the demon cries out, you are the Holy One of God. Jesus' holiness spreads. Spreads to a man possessed by a demon. It spreads to a man who has leprosy. Jesus' holiness is contagious. More powerful than the uncleanliness they could encounter in the first century. had this moment this morning when I was just thinking and praying about this moment in the message, and I just realized, man, there are people in this room right now that have come in this morning wondering whether the stain on their past could ever be wiped clean. And when we read this, we see Jesus' presence makes us holy. There is nothing you bring into this room that the contagious holiness of Jesus cannot cleanse. And when he's healed, Jesus tells the man to go to a priest. This is important, right? Because the way it works essentially in the first century in the sacrificial system is a priest's duties only really last for a couple of weeks a year. And then they have like an off-season, which is basically the whole year. And when they're off-season, they go back to their like religious, their community. So maybe they go to Capernaum or Chorazin or Bethsaida or whatever. 
And when they went home in this off-season, they often functioned as scribes or judges or magistrates in these different ways. And one of the things they did is they had this responsibility in their hometowns in the off-season of pronouncing people like lepers clean or unclean, right? So they could write a clean bill of health, kind of like a doctor's note, um, and it would be certified in writing, and that person would either be deemed clean or unclean by the priest who is now a scribe or whomever in his locale. So Jesus tells this guy, hey, go to that local priest and get this certificate in writing so that you can be restored back into the community. So you can go back to work, you can go back to your family, you can go back to worship at the synagogue. Jesus' healing is not simply of leprosy, but restoration in its fullest sense so that this guy could be restored back into community from isolation. But Jesus tells him, hey, don't tell anyone, cool? Right? Thumbs up. But word spreads anyway, right? Gossip moves real fast, especially in the ancient world. Jesus relieves the leper of his burden, but in broadcasting the news, the leper actually now imposes a burden on Jesus. Jesus is now forced to stay in the lonely places because the crowds have now become so overwhelming. What's fascinating about this chunk of stories is that when we began, right, Jesus was inside the synagogue and the leper was outside in the lonely place. And now when we end Mark 1, the leper is going to the priest, attending synagogue. And Jesus is outside. The leper and Jesus have traded places by the end of Mark 1. The question is, right, through these various stories, one of the things we try and do at Wellspring each Sunday is, okay, so we have these stories. Now, how do they relate to our everyday life with God? Now, there are two things, but the second one sort of flows out of the first. Uh, the first one is this, that Jesus meets diverse people in diverse ways with diverse needs in their moment of need. Right? He meets a demon-possessed guy at, quote-unquote, church, right? and he sets him free. He meets Simon's mother in her home and heals her. He meets others at the door after sunset, bringing all sorts of needs, and he meets a leper in another town. But what stands out is that Jesus is constantly meeting the people he encounters who carry their various needs to him. And he meets them in their place of need. And I guess the question, quite simply for you this morning, is what need do you bring into this place? Mark is trying to tell us, hey, if you have needs, Jesus is who we bring them to. My guess is some of us are stuck in patterns that we cannot get out of. We might not be possessed by a demon. Maybe you are. I, I don't. My guess is no, though I'm suspicious of row three. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, but we get trapped 
in patterns that bind us and hold us hostage. And I think what Mark is trying to tell us is you don't need to live in that pattern of being bound and trapped. Jesus is the one who breaks the boundaries, the one who breaks the holds on us. Or maybe you come this morning in need of healing, like Peter's mother-in-law. Maybe it's physical, maybe it's emotional, but you're carrying it around and affects you. Your relationships, maybe your marriage, maybe your school. Maybe you're just sitting there wishing that if you put out your hand, Jesus would grab it too. And he would lift you up like he did Simon's mother-in-law. Or maybe there's a part of you that carries some shame. There's a part of you like the leper that's not even sure, is Jesus even willing? Does he even want to be with me? During this second set of worship, uh, we're going to have some people I've just asked to pray in the back. They'll just be along these, the back wall. And I don't know, my hope is that some of you will find five seconds of courage to walk out of your seat and ask one of them to pray for you. I get it. Often in social settings and in church, we're taught that we should be perfect. But we're not, you know. In fact, from my optic, it's the people who ask for help that seem to me to be most devoted to Jesus and his kingdom because they know that what they need is not to sit in the pew in fear, but to go and ask for help because it's in that moment of prayer and intercession that I think God shows up most powerfully. So you're going to have that opportunity. The other thing I wanted to talk about, so Jesus meets diverse people in diverse ways with diverse needs. And this kind of flows out of it. Uh, one of the interesting things about this little chunk of stories is there's this interesting movement between isolation and community, between sort of service and rest, right? Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, and she moves from sort of isolated with a fever into service of her family, of Jesus, of the people gathered. Jesus heals a leper and he moves from isolation to restoration into a faith community. Right? And simultaneously, you have Jesus moving from in the community and connected to a place of rest and prayer and refreshment so that he can be re-solidified in God's calling to him, God's purpose for him, the mission God has given him. Now you have this movement from isolation to community and from community into solitude. Now, sometimes I uh, use this little whiteboard because I think it captures sort of the visual. Um, I'll try not to knock over any guitars or anything. Well, always an adventure. Um, so I was trying to think of like a little matrix, if you can see this. Can you guys see it? Ish? If you can't, I did my best. All right. So I think there's this sort of matrix here between connected and isolated, and then rested and exhausted. And my basic thesis is that our culture moves this way. 
you're given all these roles and responsibilities that sort of bring you to this place of exhaustion. You have all these things to do and they mount and they mount and they mount and you get to the end of the day and what are you? You're exhausted. So then what do you do? You turn on Netflix, you go to your phone, which then what? Makes you more isolated. You have this push in our cultural moment towards isolation and exhaustion simultaneously. Tell me if you felt that. One or two of us? Right? It brings us to this place where we can't connect with people because we're too tired. And then we're so concerned about all the needs and responsibilities swirling around us that we just become more and more exhausted. But I think the biblical text is trying to tell us actually to move this way. Jesus is connected in ministry. He has disciples with him. He's connected to what God is doing, but he's also taking time to rest in the Father. This is hard to pull off. Where we are connected and rested. But I do think that is the invitation of the disciple, of the follower of Jesus. Now, I don't think this means that you need to wake up at 2 a.m. and pray in the middle of the night. I think most of us probably need to sleep a fair amount more than we actually do. But I do think this gets at the diverse needs that diverse people bring to Jesus. Because I think we are in a cultural moment where many of us feel both exhausted and isolated, and we feel like we are stuck and we don't know how to get out of it. And what happens then is our spiritual life kind of sucks. And we think that we'll come to church and we'll hear it amazing sermon, and uh, <laughs> or hear awesome worship, and it's going to break everything. And that might be true. But I think we need to recognize that somewhere in this cycle, we are losing touch with our connection with the Father, who both restores us and give us renewed purpose. So that when we re-enter into community, we actually can offer all of who we are. Not just a fraction of ourselves exhausted and worn out, waiting for that communal gathering to end so we can just flip, turn on Netflix and drool on the couch. You laugh because you also know what that feels like. So what we're going to do is we are going to turn to Jesus. And we are going to ask him as the worship team comes up to set us free. We not, might not be possessed by a demon. But I think we have been lured to sleep by the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture. And we have allowed our culture to be our king rather than Jesus. Some people in the back that will pray for you if you relate to any of that, I encourage you, have someone pray for you. As we sing this song, we invite you just to turn to Jesus with your need, 
get up out of your seat, raise your hands, fall on your face. This is a time to restore our heart and our mind and our body to the presence of Jesus. Mark is telling us, Jesus is the one who sets us free. Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus is the model that we are to follow. Let's turn to him now in worship. Come, Lord. Just saw this picture during that first set of worship, just of a chain, and just saw this picture of Jesus just breaking the chain. I think some of us are bound in. and So Holy Spirit, I just pray for you to show up and break the chains that bind us. Undermine the cycles of our culture that leave us exhausted and isolated. God, restore us to your presence that we might be used in your kingdom. That we might be a people that are bonded to we face. May we find peace and hope and freedom in your presence. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Father. Make us more like your Son. God, break the powers that bind us that we might be set free to serve you.